Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people in the mental health profession. Quick disclaimer, because you know that stuff is important these days. Uh, Mental Status is a podcast about burnout in the mental health field. It's for entertainment and educational purposes only. This is not therapy, and this is not clinical supervision. There are no CEUs associated with this podcast. Enjoy it and share it as you will. And if you're in a space where you're needing deeper support, please seek out therapy or supervision for yourself from somebody who is qualified to provide those services for you. Okay, here we go. Today's interview was with science savvy Carissa Weber, who is known online and on her blog as That Darn Amygdala. Carissa talks all about the brain science behind burnout and stress, including what happens to our nervous systems when we go through periods of chronic stress, what this can do to our physical bodies and our health, as well as some super helpful ways to give our nervous systems a break to recalibrate and cool off. We also talked about the importance of boundary setting in clinical work, and Carissa talks about how she made some really important and specific boundaries work for her during the age of virtual therapy. Carissa had lots of awesome stuff to share about the brain, self-care, and taking care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. So let's get right into it and dig in. Did you hear that? Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so um, let us begin. Welcome everybody to Mental Status. I am your host, Megan. I am very excited to have you here with us today. Um, I've got a extra special guest on the show today and I wanna make sure she can introduce herself so we can get started right away. Uh, Special guest, who are you, where are you and how are you feeling today? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm Carissa Weber. I am a mental health therapist by day and a crazy blog creator by night. Um, I am located in central Wisconsin on this fine day, and I am, you know, feeling pretty good, feeling really ready to talk about mental health, burnout, and everything that goes along with it. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show uh, because one of the things that stuck out to me immediately when I saw your presence online is you know the big focus on the brain science because um, your handle is that darn amygdala which I just I love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I it, it's one of those things that I say in my practice to my clients a lot of times is that yeah. darn amygdala is screwing with us again. Um, so it just kind of seemed fitting for it to be kind of the name of my blog, the name of my handle, and kind of use that to help people understand why our brain is doing what it's doing and creating what we're feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So maybe you can get us started. It's kind of an open-ended question, but just get us started by talking a little bit about your background with burnout. Oh, um, well, for the last 11 years, I have worked as a mental health therapist here in the state of Wisconsin. I've worked in many different settings, mm-hmm. uh, a residential um, drug and alcohol setting, which when we talk about burnout was huge, how many people would come back after not being able to handle their stress and unfortunately relapsing. Um, I've also worked as crisis intervention. So I'm the people that the police would call in if someone was having suicidal thoughts, homicidal thoughts, we're just having kind of 
a mental breakdown and how many times it came back down to people weren't listening to them and they weren't mm-hmm. able to get the help they needed when they were burned out. And then I moved into private practice where I work with a lot of professionals, um, doctors, hospitalists, nurses, police officers, firefighters, fellow therapists, social workers, and all of them coming in saying, I don't understand why I feel like this. Nothing has changed. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're doing like 50, 60, 70 hours a week and you're not taking care of yourself. Let's explore burnout. Right. And even with myself um, being a therapist, I've experienced burnout more, unfortunately, than on one occasion based on how many hours I was putting in. Um, the fact that not only am I a full-time therapist, I am a full-time mom, I'm a full-time wife, my husband and I have a hobby farm. Yeah, Life is chaotic and busy and burnout can happen to all of us. You know, even us experienced therapists, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd be uh, open to exploring just, you know, first kind of your own experience with burnout. So in the years that you've been working in those different settings, like, I don't know, like, what was it like for you? How, how did you experience burnout? Yeah. Yeah. And I think in each setting, and I, I share this very openly, because each setting had a different unique set of stressors Mm -hmm. that brought on a a different type of burnout for each time. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was working in the residential treatment program, the burnout there happened after, you know, because I was working six days a week. I was working almost eight to nine hour days. Um, You put that with being a young mom and seeing so many people constantly coming back in. And being a new therapist on top of that, not only did we have a little bit of that kind of crazy imposter syndrome sneaking in, like I must not be doing the right thing if people keep having to come back, but also just the amount of time that was being associated with mental health. Because again, Mm -hmm. I was working as a residential treatment therapist. I was finishing up my master's degree. I was, you know, also leading group therapy for an outpatient setting it was so tough. And finally, one day, I, I remember I didn't want to go to work, I didn't want to eat, I didn't want to get my workout, I was snippy with my kids for, you know, being a two year old and a one year old, which there's no reason to be snippy at a two year old and a one year old. Mm -hmm. And it finally, after um, a pretty significant uh, client who I worked with for a couple of years kept coming back and passed away from their substance use. I, I have to admit, I almost fell off the deep end. I didn't want to leave. I was like, maybe this wasn't the field for me. I was researching jobs that were really simple and absolutely nothing to do with mental health. Mm-hmm. And then decided to leave that job and took a, a little bit of time off to be like, what is going on? What is, what do I need? And it turned out that for me, it was just accumulation of everything. So taking time to do some self-care, taking time away. And then I came back into um, the crisis intervention role, which I have to admit, I absolutely loved being Mm -hmm. out in the community. I loved helping people in their, their big time of need. But along with that came a lot of compassion fatigue, Mm -hmm. Um, came a lot of secondary trauma 
things that I was seeing in the field, I was experiencing in the field, things that people were threatening me with in the field because I was trying to keep them safe um, became more of a trauma response. And so with that particular burnout, I was, I was doing what I could to give back to the community, to get them the resources, no matter how limited, that they needed so they could feel safe and secure. Mm-hmm. And in the process of giving so much of myself, um, I noticed, again, I wasn't doing things that I loved. I noticed I was exhausted all the time. Um, I was being treated at, um, at my local doctor's office because I thought I was having some weird GI thing going on. I thought maybe it was celiac disease. Maybe I was having, you know, insufficient pancreas hormone stuff just because of how horrible I was physically feeling. Right. And I really did, you know, check in with the mental stuff. I thought physically there was something wrong. And um, so after I was offered a private practice position with a local group therapy and left that job, it was almost immediately within three weeks, my physical symptoms with my stomach and my nausea and my inability to eat, inability to keep food down just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, (laughs) 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 I went, Oh, even though I loved this job and it was amazing and it made me feel validated because I was able to see results of, well, essentially people staying alive. Mm -hmm. Um, It was physically taking a toll on me. And a lot of people, when we talk about burnout, they don't talk about the physical stuff. We're always talking about the exhaustion, the bitterness, the resentment, the anger, the sleepless nights. This to me was, again, I truly 100% believe that this was something that was physical. It had nothing to do because I felt I was on top of my game. Yes, I was working about 50, 60 hours a week. I was doing kind of weird, crazy shifts, but I liked it. And I'm like, how could this have been burnout if I liked it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it goes back to the saying that too much of a good thing can be bad. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so after that experience, I came into private practice, my physical symptoms resolved. I'm like, okay, I now know my mental symptoms. I know my physical symptoms ain't going to happen again. (laughs) Never, ever, ever, ever going to happen again. And lo and behold, COVID happened. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) My entire practice moved from being inpatient to being telehealth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will admit, and I am, I hope other therapists, mental health professionals can admit this. I was not prepared for the fact that my boundaries would become so blurred with telehealth. Um, It became kind of where it's like I could structure my day, which was great. And I loved it because I could take breaks and, you know, help my husband with the homeschooling of our kids. I could go out and, you know, snuggle a horse. I'm like, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. I can take an afternoon walk with my dog. Mm -hmm. Great. (laughs) But I found myself being unable to detach from my email, my clients emailing me all the time because they were worried about what was going on. Mm -hmm. I found myself suddenly saying, hey, I could take a client or two after my kids go to bed. I found myself saying, having a harder, harder time saying no to people when they're like, Hey, the only time I can meet right now is during lunch when my kids are busy. Yep. And I found myself kind of going back to that compassion fatigue of, 
I can still help people. This is no big deal. It's not like it's going to take the energy that, you know, therapy sessions take in person. And boy, was I wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as, as telehealth continued to happen, I found myself being like, I, I don't want to talk on the phone. I don't want to talk to people. I kind of want to just be alone. Mm-hmm. And being an extroverted person, that's not me. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself when we were able to kind of go back in person, I was pushing clients to go back in person more for the fact that it was like, yeah, this is, I lost all control of my boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so this burnout was, again, different from the other two for the simple fact that the boundaries were completely blurred. It wasn't like with, the crisis intervention job where there was clearly black and white things you had to do based on state protocol. Mm -hmm. This was, I could do whatever I wanted. And I kind of let myself go down that path of not maintaining what I needed. And what's very interesting is when I talk to so many professionals in the helping field, I am not afraid to bring up all three situations and be like, this is where we're trying to do well. And we mean well, Mm -hmm. But when we mean well, and we're not taking care of ourselves, there's no way we're going to be effective. Right. Even though we think, and that's where that darn amygdala comes in, (laughs) where we think that we are doing well, because our amygdala is filtering saying, this is what you need to do to be productive. This is what you need to do to be helpful. And that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So there's just like, there's so much of that story that I connect to, even though I have fewer years in the field, you know, I, I interned at a co-occurring disorders clinic, right? So I was on the mental health side while the people who were coming through, um, they were getting both, um, drug and alcohol counseling and then mental health counseling group, all that stuff. Uh Um, after that, I didn't do mobile crisis unit, but I was an in-home therapist doing intensive family therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now I am in a group practice. So our stories are actually like similar. And as you were talking about each of those situations, I was like, yes, yep. That, yep. That happened. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And for each of those things, like the, the one that like really caught my attention is, but I loved the work. I loved what I was doing. I don't understand how that could have caused burnout because I loved it so much. And I think that that is something that I hear a lot from folks is this is the work I'm passionate about. This is what I feel called to do. This is, this is me. So how can it cause me so much pain when I love what I do? Uh So I think it's really important that we're able to recognize as you did eventually, like it doesn't show up in the same way every time, even if you love the job, it can show up. And I mean, you're not the first person I've talked to who's talked about like GI symptoms and yeah. physical illness, even if they weren't feeling it necessarily mentally. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'd love to bring in a little bit of science of why we feel physical, why we yeah. have the physical symptoms when we experience burnout. And as mental health professionals, we've all gone through the psychology courses. We all mm-hmm. kind of know what is happening with the brain. We understand how neurotransmitters work in our brain. Mm-hmm. But when we are stressed and overwhelmed, even if we like something, our body goes into an acute distress response. So our fight, flight, freeze um, stuff, mm-hmm. our response, there we go. 
<laughs> brain fart there. Yeah. But when we do that, our brain can even do it with things that we enjoy and it creates something called eustress and mm-hmm. eustress is that feel good stress that helps us stay on our toes. It releases adrenaline, it releases norepinephrine, and it also releases the hormone cortisol. Mm-hmm. Even though we enjoy it, our brain is saying, Hey, we still have to be alert. We still have to be on our aim game. So no different than if I were to use the example of, you know, we're getting ready to take our, our board exams. Mm-hmm. It's nerve wracking, but we're excited to do it because all the years of schooling we've done have put us out there. Mm-hmm. Or if we're going on a call, when I think of mobile crisis intervention and we go on a call and we're like, yes, we're doing something. We're being productive. We're helping the community. You're still nervous because you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know who is currently in a state where their schizophrenia is impacting them and they think you're there to hurt them. So they start chucking everything in the kitchen at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as we're experiencing that use stress, what is going on is the cortisol is shutting down part of our central nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for digestion, Mm -hmm. which is responsible for kind of controlling our bowels, which is responsible for peristalsis in our gut. And what's interesting when that stops, our body is no longer processing what's in our stomach, which this is really crucial because when we talk about how we feel good, our feel good neurotransmitters, serotonin Mm -hmm. comes from our gut. It is produced when we take in the amino acid tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Now, tryptophan is something that is famous around Thanksgiving. It's what makes us tired. And I use air quotes. <laughs> it's yep. what makes us tired. What makes us tired as Thanksgiving is we totally gorge ourselves on deliciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, it has nothing to do with the amount of tryptophan <laughs> that we have. But tryptophan is produced in our, or is taken out of food and the byproduct is serotonin. So mm-hmm. when we are stressed, even with you stress, our body isn't producing the serotonin. And when it's not producing the serotonin and we're stuck kind of in this shutdown mode, of course, our guts are going to hurt. Of course, and here's a little TMI, our poops might not be what we're normally used to. Yeah. We might be a little nauseous. We might, you know, find ourselves going, God, this isn't normal for me. What is, what is physically going on? And I have to admit, it wasn't until I left that job that I was like brain body connection psychology 101. Hello. How did I forget Mm -hmm. this? Mm -hmm. It was me thinking, is this celiac? So I did, I tried for about a year where I cut out gluten and I'm like, Nope, it still isn't feeling right. Went to the doctor, got on a whole bunch of medications to try to get everything jump-started and going and nothing was working. And I was like, then I started feeling frustration because nothing was working. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I left the job, I was every, I I could stop all the meds I was on. I didn't have to go back and see my GI specialist. And I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Right. How, how, how could I, a mental health professional not realize that this was stress related? Yeah. Yeah. And when we look at it and we look at the science behind it, it's like, well, no wonder our serotonin shuts down. Our body is in the, you know, fight, flight, or freeze response. Of course, this Mm -hmm. is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
And I'm thinking of my own experiences just through grad school, through internships and my first few jobs. And even like, to be honest, sort of recently, like in learning over time to recognize my stress response, because I've talked about it as being like, for me, part of it is physical pain. So I have like something weird in my left shoulder where when I'm stressed, that is the spot that tells me, but I've also noticed over time, like I'll have some of those GI symptoms as well. Either Mm -hmm. I'll be super hungry or not hungry at all. Things are not feeling like it's, it's doing what I'm used to. You know, my stomach Mm -hmm. is just not feeling good. Um, and that's definitely been a process for me over time in learning to recognize, like, not only is it the fatigue and being irritable, but it's like feeling bloated or feeling, you know, my stomach isn't right. Um, so yeah, I, I think that for us as professionals, it's really important to be able to understand all of the different ways. And at the same time, you know, if we're talking about, um, working with individuals who are also experiencing not just you stress, but stress and trauma, Yeah, being able to help them understand like, so you have a history of complex trauma and you also have all of these chronic illnesses related to physical pain and, you know, the GI system. Like I'm not going to pretend that I know everything about that, but I know just enough to know that those things may be related. So being Mm -hmm. able to understand our experience and bring that to the people we're working with as well, it seems, seems like it could be helpful. Yeah. And that's where, when I talk with professionals, I stress so much of being able to slow down and check in with yourself physically and emotionally, at least three times a day Mm. for the simple fact that it's allowing our brain more particular, our prefrontal cortex get into the habit that this is what needs to happen. And it can fact check the situations to be like, this is what's happening. This is how we can justify Mm -hmm. how we react because we know that our prefrontal cortex being our planner, our objective thinker needs those facts in order to tell the amygdala, Hey, stop overreacting. Right. Right. And a lot of times people are like, I don't have time to do that. And I tell people, it doesn't have to be this long 20 minute, 30 minute process. Every time you check in with yourselves, mm-hmm. it can be as simple as take a breath. Where am I feeling it right now? Is there anything going on today that I know that has me stressed mm-hmm. and then moving on? Yeah. Sometimes just the simple acknowledgement is enough to allow our body's, you know, stress system to calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is super important. Um, cause I, I, I hear that a lot and I've said that to myself a lot, like I don't have time. And I think, you know, for all the benefits that we can gain by learning about self-care and checking in with ourselves, there is sort of this idea that it, it does take a meditation session or exercise or going for a walk or, you know, reaching out and connecting yeah. with loved ones, which all super important things, but for the individual who is operating at level 150%, trying to go down to level, even 90% is going to feel really hard. So allowing ourselves to take those like small moments. Yeah. Yeah. And even when we talk about it, those of us who are in the helping field, how many of us can do that without feeling guilty? There's like this weird guilt complex. (laughs) And I don't like, I understand it, but I don't understand why we think we are above the rules of nature that we don't need that self-care. We don't need that downtime that we keep affording other people 
at our own expense. And especially when we talk about in the mental health field, it's even a little more crucial for us because not only are we helping people and holding space for people, but we ourselves are experiencing secondary complex trauma Mm -hmm. by listening to people and hanging on to these and not having the outlet. Um, Before I was in the therapy field, I was in the medical nursing field. Mm -hmm. And I could tell you, I was really good at compartmentalizing what was happening on the unit with clients versus what I was doing for school. I was able to make that separation. But when we hear our clients' stories, Sometimes it's hard to, to shut that off and take that time to be like, okay, yep. Somebody just told me about their horrific sexual assault from the time that they were five to 15. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go home and make a sandwich and pretend nothing ever happened. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's not like a once a week or once a month thing. It's like, for some of us, it's an everyday, multiple times a day. Yeah. Yes. And I can tell you, especially working with the the substance use field, that being where my specialty is, mm-hmm. it's a daily occurrence where somebody yeah. comes in and they're sober and suddenly they remember something that happened that makes you go, wow, mm-hmm. is this, are, are you just blowing smoke up my butt? Because how, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. How can people be this cruel to one another? Yeah. And over time, part of that burnout comes off that we're kind of jaded, that we kind of become skeptical, that we kind of, you know, being happy, bubbly people suddenly find ourselves saying, people are idiots. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Which feels so antithetical to being in the field. Like, because I genuinely do care for people all over, but Mm -hmm. you're right. Like personal life. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what the hell? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, how can you guys be this stupid? Yeah. But the thing is, and that's a great sign for us to look at and check in and be like, holy crap, what happened today that suddenly I'm, you know, ready to yell at the lady in front of me at the checkout because mm-hmm. she is just being rude. Right. Those are the moments where we check in and say, okay, what am I feeling? Where am I feeling it? And is this feeling justified? Mm-hmm. By answering those three questions, when we check in, it allows us to be able to say, oh, I am starting to move towards that burnout phase. Mm -hmm. Maybe I need to check in and do some self-care today. Mm -hmm. Or it can be the opposite and say, you know what? That was a really awesome response. I'm doing awesome. (laughs) I am nailing this. And, but a lot of people forget, even though we teach our clients this, we have to walk the walk. We have to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. How as, as teachers, as professionals, can we help our clients walk through it if we don't do it ourselves on a daily basis? Right. Yeah. And that acknowledging that walking the walk is a difficult thing, you know, because when we do that for ourselves, then we do have a better understanding of the challenges that our clients will face when they try to start taking care of themselves, especially for those of us who specialize in working with other helping professionals or people who are caregivers in some aspect of their life, like professionally, we are that as well. And so learning for ourselves, what it actually means to tackle and really work through those belief systems of everybody else deserves this care before I deserve care, or Mm -hmm. I am too busy to do anything for Mm -hmm. myself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I love sharing that message with people, especially who are young parents, mm-hmm. um, being a parent myself, there's plenty of times where it's like, I try to make sure my husband has downtime. My kids have downtime. Everyone's doing everything that they want and they're not taking on too much, but that leaves me being the one who's taking on so much. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I let it go. I let it go. And something small trips me up and suddenly I'm exploding of no one else is doing anything. Why am I doing this? And everyone looks at me like mom has just lost it. Mm-hmm. But I teach it to them, not only as a way for them to take care of themselves, but to model it to the people around them that this is normal. This is okay to take that time to slow down. Mm -hmm. It's okay to take the time to do what you need to do to be happy, to Mm -hmm. keep your guts producing the serotonin. And when we do that, we know that our kids are more likely to learn what we model versus what we say. Oh, yeah. I mean... I can tell you, even if I use the example of my own kids, when it comes to doing dishes, Mm -hmm. if I just tell my kids to go do dishes, they're going to be like, okay, whatever. They might unload the dishwasher. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe. (laughs) Um, But if they see me doing dishes on a regular basis and how I do dishes Mm -hmm. and my husband does dishes on a regular basis and they see how he does dishes, when we ask them to do dishes, it's not going to be a 40 minute fight of why did you leave clean dishes on the counter? Why did you put clean dishes and dirty dishes together? Why is there still macaroni noodles in the cup that I pulled out of the cabinet? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so when we model that, it allows us to lead by example and to be in a healthy place to continue to lead and nurture the people around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It goes back to the saying that you can't pour from an empty cup. Exactly. Yeah. And filling your cup can also look like showing people how to fill theirs and showing them the, the boundaries that need to be in place in order for you to fill your cup and for them to fill theirs, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in thinking about what you were saying about COVID, um, -hmm. that's, that's a whole other area around boundaries around time and Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think that has been for the vast majority of people who are working, especially in, um, more outpatient type settings, but probably like more intensive settings too. everything moving online, all of our client interactions coming literally to our homes or wherever we, we spend most of our time. Um, I mean, I, I was nodding my head with that too, in recognizing like especially during the earlier months, but even still a little bit to this day, it's been really difficult to find out what does it mean to have my work and this type of work existing Uh in the same space where I am living my life, doing my stuff. I have my family. It's a lot. So, so how have you found to be the most effective way to model your boundaries when it comes to the virtual world. I mean, I know you said you've been going back in person, but Mm -hmm. what else have you found effective? I have found effective that I have moved my office to my actual office. I do whatever I can possible to not see clients when I'm at home. Sure. Um, Which a lot of people, when we had the shutdown was like, that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. However, you know, now that we're kind of seeing an uptick in COVID again, Mm -hmm. 
you know, my group practice, they have seen the benefits of even us therapists not being at our homes doing virtual therapy. Yeah. So I will, even though I like doing, and I can still wear jammies when I do my virtual <laughs> sessions in my office, cause nobody is coming in, yep. but I tend to do just that where I go to my office space. I also tend to make sure when I'm doing virtual sessions for the majority of my day, that I take a 15 minute break between every single session. That is a mandatory minimum. Okay. So my brain has time to reset. My eyes have time to reset. And it allows me to be able to be a little more present to pick up on all the things, the little nuances that the camera, you know, might not make such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I've also made it very clear to all of my clients that starting at 6 p.m., I don't check emails. Sure. I do not check emails after 6 p.m. I do not check emails on the weekend. Um, our group practice, we have an emergency line. So if it's a huge emergency, mm-hmm. they can call and reach out then. But um, I've made that boundary really clear that that's after 6 p.m. I'm, I shut my laptop and that's it. Yeah. So those are things that I've done to help keep boundaries within the office. But with that said, there's also things that I'm doing to prevent that burnout from coming back again. Mm -hmm. And that is including, you know, taking time to be outside. Um, It's no secret. We all as therapists have shared with our clients, hey, get outside, get some vitamin D. This helps release dopamine into our brain. You'll feel better. But legitimately getting outside for me at least three times a week. And I make that a goal that I write down in my little planner on my desk, get outside three times a week. So I am able to say I got that vitamin D release. And plus I'm somebody who loves nature Mm -hmm. for me. Our house is in the middle of the woods. Mm -hmm. I've got, I, I, I'm not embarrassed anymore to admit that I have over 30 chickens. (laughs) Nice. I've got my horses, my dogs, and, you know, being outside with them allows me to set the goal to keep myself mentally fit. Mm -hmm. We talk about doing a walk. I've, again, I make sure I make the time and there I go again, saying make the time to take at least a mile walk each day, Mm -hmm. because I know that that physical activity is going to help me feel better. Yeah. And I hold myself accountable to practicing this. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people think when they look at their calendar, they can make the excuses. Well, I didn't have time for this because the weather was icky, or I didn't have time for this because I had kids who were throwing up. The thing is, is when we don't prioritize our needs, we're going to continue to blur our boundaries of what we have to do to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I... (laughs) As you're talking about, you know, time between sessions and making the time on your, your calendar. Um, I kind of smiled myself because those, like, even though I'm doing a a podcast about burnout and talking about boundaries and trying to promote this stuff, like I'm actively struggling with those things myself. Like I, I do not part of it for me being still an associate and working in a group Uh practice where I get a, I get a flat fee for each session. I have been prioritizing, making sure that I can meet a certain level of productivity for myself in order to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And what that has meant for me is 
I'm not giving myself those 15 minute breaks between sessions. I'm literally, I'm some days I'm scheduling back to back. I'm like, why do I do this to myself? But well, and I think as you say that, that resonates with me so much because how many of us as therapists are scheduling outside of our means because Mm -hmm. financially we need to do it. Yeah. I think of all of us who have student loans. Mm -hmm. I think of all of us who insurance does not reimburse what we're supposed to be getting, Mm -hmm. that they set the price and doesn't make it viable. I think of all of us, especially I think in my area, um, we have a mental health crisis going on because we have a provider shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, my clinic alone, we have a three month wait list, which just mm. pisses me off. I know so many therapists are like, well, I have a three month list. I have a six month list. I have a nine month wait. And it's like, dude, like, what? that's bad. That is bad. I mean, any other profession would be like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. In mental health, these are people who want help mm-hmm. and we can't help them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you also put in the fact with COVID, I mean, for our household, it was a complete change because my husband's job was, you know, they were non-essential. Yeah. So we lost his income, even though we were getting unemployment, it was not his whole income. So I found myself during COVID bumping up my hours too, because financially we needed it. Yeah. And so even though I, I've, no, I practice what I preach. And there are days I find it super duper hard because the guilt complex comes in of mm-hmm. how do I meet my bottom line? Yep. How do I meet my criteria of productivity? And that is where the struggle for me has been. I have to lower my bar from what I expect to what is realistic. Mm-hmm. And when we look at what is realistic and we achieve what is realistic, we get such a dopamine boost, a serotonin boost, an endorphin boost versus we don't meet that high bar. Mm -hmm. And then we feel like a failure. We go down the list of cognitive distortions and posture syndrome sets in. So we push ourselves even harder and then we burn out even faster. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the big picture, we look at what are we doing that is realistic and how realistic is this pace to keep up? Mm-hmm. Um, I will admit I am somebody who has been known on occasion to schedule 37 clients in a week. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I look at that though. And there's some times where I can justify that and saying, you know what? I have somebody coming back from residential treatment. I have somebody who is in an active crisis mode. Yeah. I have somebody who unfortunately, you know, is coming back from a two week COVID hiatus. Mm -hmm. Can I do it this week? Yes. Mm -hmm. Emotionally, can I keep doing it? I can do that for about two weeks before I start noticing I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's about recognizing what your limits are and not pushing them. In this case of seeing that many clients, tolerance isn't going to make things better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and simply tolerating it. Um, it doesn't make things better for us and it doesn't give our clients the best care possible. And so in, in all of this too, I mean, I do like to point out that we're not just here to take care of ourselves so we can work more, but there is that aspect for pretty much all of us in the, the helping fields where there is an ethical imperative to, Make sure that we are, 
you know, not burnt out so that we do not harm our clients so that they are getting quality, competent care from somebody who's not sitting across from them, either in person or on a computer screen, who is silently hating their life because they're pushing themselves beyond their boundaries every single day, every single week for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. No different than when we talk about, and I want to use the example of surgeons. Mm-hmm. If they get stuck in a case and it's over 12 hours, it's a mandatory 24 hours off. Yeah. No ifs, ands, buts, or coconuts, a mandatory 24 hours off so they can come back in yeah. and be able to perform their job correctly. Yep. We talk about firefighters. Mm-hmm. Even though they have 24 hour shifts, they still have 48 hours off. Yep. We talk about nurses. And after they work so many hours, it's a mandatory time off. Even if we talk about factory workers, oh my gosh, here in Wisconsin, Georgia's swing shift rules supreme. Mm. And if you're not familiar with Georgia's swing shift, it is mm-hmm. where you work five days on for day shift, then you have three days off, five days on for second shift, three days off, and then five days for night shift, then three days off, and then back to day shift. Okay. You still have three days off to readjust your circadian rhythm to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And even then, if you're forced over for a shift, they add an extra day off for your stuff. Mm -hmm. Mental health providers need to start following that model that in order for us to take care of people, we Mm -hmm. have to take the necessary time. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, Mental health professionals have a hard time with that. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it's like, come on. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, yeah, and I'm preaching about myself too, because there's plenty of yeah. times where I find myself going, Carissa, that was stupid. Today was your, your paperwork day. Why on God's green earth did you schedule three people on your paperwork day? <laughs> right. Oh, you know, yeah. And yeah. that, it and everybody that I've talked to both for the show and colleagues and classmates and professors and supervisors, that is the prevailing theme. You talk Mm -hmm. about it here. I think I talked about it in a previous episode. Um, there are certain driving factors for many, many people who work in this field. Um, those underlying core beliefs that we have about ourselves or the core beliefs that we have about being a helping professional that get in our way of taking a step back. So, I mean, I think some of the things that I went over were, um, if I don't do it, nobody else will, these people need me taking care of myself is selfish, which that's, that's a theme that I hear a lot these days. And I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about the fact that it's actually, even if it is selfish, sometimes it's okay to be selfish, like selfish across the board is not a bad. No. And I think people, when we understand selfish, Mm -hmm. they, It has such a negative connotation Mm -hmm. that it makes it where you don't want to do it. No different than people. When we say you need to say something positive about yourself, they think it's boastful or prideful. Mm -hmm. And we really need to a knock it off and (laughs) b redefine what these words really mean. Because when we talk about selfish, selfish is when we do things for ourselves rather than the greater good. Yeah. How is self-care, selfish, when it allows us to continue to provide more 
quality of care to mm-hmm. the greater good. Yeah. So by that definition, self-care and taking time to rejuvenate ourselves is not selfish. Mm-hmm. It almost comes down to this idea where we have to have somebody give us permission to do yeah. what we need to do so yeah. we can keep giving. And if that's what you need, hear it loud and clear right now. I give you permission to yeah. take time each week to do something to promote self-care so you feel good about yourself. Yeah. There you go. There's your permission. Love it. Thank you for that permission. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've had that conversation um, with clients too, and not just clients who work in the helping profession, although some of them do, but people who are parents or who are caring for parents, or they work as teachers or just in general have grown and developed in a way where they feel safest or most productive or most valuable when they are giving to others. And there is this prevailing theme of, well, I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be selfish. I don't want people to not like me. I don't want them to think this, that, and the other about me. If I, instead of making everybody's lunches a week in advance and do everything for everybody, like if I, if I actually went and sat on the porch for an hour and read a book and everybody else doesn't have their knees, it's going to be bad. And I've, I've had those conversations where it's like, it's, is, is it, is it going to be okay if you don't do those things all the time? Probably you have permission to take a break. You know, it, it, it's okay. Yeah. And for those of us who need to feel like we're still being productive while we're having self-care, Um, and we're guilting ourselves because we're not being productive. We're not doing self-care, right? Right. I mean, I use kind of, and for us here in central Wisconsin, farm work kind of reigns supreme. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of farm analogies. So (laughs) if it doesn't resonate with you guys, let me know and I'll change it up. But the best way I see it is when we have kids who are working with their animals for 4-H fairs coming up. Mm-hmm. We're in fair season right now. As far as a parent goes, oftentimes we instill our love of animals into our kids. And I find myself oftentimes within our local 4-H group, my, my self-care is giving back to our little horse club in our 4-H and teaching kids how to ride correctly, what what proper fitting tack goes on our horses, helping build their confidence so they can do well in shows. And my husband's like, but you're still dealing with people. I'm like, but it's different because I'm still dealing with horses. I'm seeing growth not just for myself, but from other people. And my horses are getting ready to take care of other people. And so even though, yes, I am seeing production in my self-care, it's a different type of self-care because it's still something that I love to do. And it's something that is, you know, for the mom brain out there, ensuring that my kids aren't going to get hurt, you know, hurt while they're on my horses. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I was going to say, yeah, just even if your self-care looks like doing something like 
you know, it, it doesn't have to be reading a book, listening no. to music, all this stuff. It can be it can, actively participating. Mm-hmm. In other it things. can be volunteering. So mm-hmm. many people I know volunteering in something that they don't normally do is enough to make them feel good. Like example, I know some people who do Habitat for Humanity and that they absolutely love. I know some people who volunteer with 4-H clubs are within their church system and that Mm -hmm. is perfectly fine. Um, Self-care doesn't have to be like you said, sitting down and reading a book, doing physical exercise, going to the gym, getting a massage all the time. For me, sometimes self-care looks like matching all the mismatched socks in my sock basket. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, but that's the thing is you have to take the time to recognize what self-care works best for you and when, Mm -hmm. because there's going to be times where our normal, regular self-care isn't going to be enough because we had a really, really rough week, or we had a very, very rough day and we have to do something a little extra. Mm -hmm. And there we go again, where we have to practice what we preach and slow down and identify what actually works for us mm-hmm. and practice it on a regular basis. Because if we don't practice it, it's not going to work when the time comes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really talking about using it as, you know, prevention versus intervention, which I think is mm-hmm. something that a lot of us would be familiar with in this field is trying to prevent the thing. And you may not be able to entirely prevent all of it from happening. However, in giving yourself the, the time and the space when you're feeling better to continue mm-hmm. practicing those skills, they'll come easier when yeah. things get difficult. Yeah. And that's exactly it is And I love how you put it. It's prevention versus intervention. Mm -hmm. And again, if we practice it, it will stay more prevention than the intervention. Mm -hmm. And we won't be missing those days of productivity. As I use air quotes there, (laughs) we're not going to be feeling like we have dread when we go to work Yeah, because our, our clients pick up on that for sure. Yep. Yeah, they absolutely do. <laughs> They're, we work with a lot of really smart, perceptive people. And uh-huh. yeah, even if we feel like we're masking it or doing pretty well, um, <laughs> it, it can be pretty apparent when we are not uh-huh. ourselves. Any of us who's ever worked with teenagers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> y- you know that it's not, you can't hide shit from teenagers. I have to admit they kind of, they're, they're what I call my lightning pole because if they come in and their mood changes, as soon as they sit down in my office for the worse, it's usually, what is my energy saying? Mm -hmm. Yep. And I may or may not, Hey, you know, tell my clients, Hey, let's do something quick just to get the mood right. And it's, you know, helping them, but it's also helping me recenter. So I'm ready for the session. (laughs) I mean, and that's where I think therapists, they are like, well, now I'm using my client for me to do the self-care. It's like, no, we're practicing what we're preaching. Mm -hmm. And that is perfectly okay. If we practice the exercises that we're teaching our clients with them, Mm -hmm. that to me, we're modeling it, we're practicing it. We're giving them a chance to utilize it in session. So they're more apt to use it outside of session. Mm -hmm. 
go for it. You don't have to say, Hey, I'm having a bad day today. Let's do this together. Yeah. It can be, Whoa, you came in and suddenly the whole room changed. Mm-hmm. Let's take a moment and just practice some, some progressive muscle relaxation to calm us down or, mm-hmm. Hey, you've got a lot of energy today. Let's go take a walk or. Yeah. And that is okay. Right. And that's really, oh, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's like working with what they bring in rather than trying yeah. to fight against it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And as we do that, we are feeling better. It's putting us in a better place to provide session. But again, it goes back to that entire idea of us. We, you know, walk the walk, talk Mm -hmm. the talk, and they're going to learn and retain it because we're showing them Mm -hmm. versus just telling them. Right. Yeah. I've always found that in sessions where I actively practice with people, whether it's role-playing or practicing the technique, um, typically when we do that together and we practice and I'm able to answer questions or guide them through it. The next time they come back, they may say, Oh, Hey, you know, I tried that hand breathing thing where you you trace your fingers and it worked. And it's like, yeah, cool. Uh Like, I'm really glad to hear that. Or if it didn't work, be like, okay, tell me, tell me why you feel like it didn't work. Let's see if there's something else that could be more beneficial to you. Yep. Exactly. And my favorite is, you know, doing some of the mindful yoga poses too, of being like, Hey, let's try this. And let me tell you why it works. Mm -hmm. Um, or going through wise mind and let's, let's look at the facts of the situation and what our brain is telling us. And again, the, the role playing, the modeling, being present with them to go through it allows us to create that rapport and connection. Mm-hmm. all while taking care of our own mental health. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Modeling as a way to take care of ourselves and take care of others in the process. It's good stuff. So question for you, um, yes. in terms of the, the brain science aspect of this and calming down the amygdala, yeah. what are some of the top exercises or techniques that you use with the people that you work with to show them you know, literally how to calm down their amygdala. Mm-hmm. I always start with something on how we physically calm down our body when our amygdala is kind of hijacking our system. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's hard to defeat the amygdala when it's filtering everything we're saying with cognitive distortions. It's bringing out poor beliefs that we've had since we were like teens. Mm-hmm. And so I, we usually start first with how do we physically ground ourselves and calm ourselves. And then I like to bring in a lot of fact checking Mm -hmm. and shifting the perspective so we can see the full picture and not just, um, you know, what our amygdala is telling us we have to focus on. Mm -hmm. And as we pair those two together, it allows people to get their prefrontal cortex activated because it takes about 60 seconds for our prefrontal cortex to activate. Mm -hmm. Whereas our amygdala activates instantly. Yeah. So we have to let the prefrontal cortex come up and allow the prefrontal cortex to kind of pull some of our memories stored in our brain that prove that we can handle some of these situations and we can live through some of these situations and challenge those cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. 
One of my favorite ones I like to use, and this is me going down the DBT road, is I love using TIP as kind of calming down our physical body. It's an acronym that stands for temperature change, intense activity, paced breathing, and progressive muscle relaxation. Mm-hmm. Because it focuses all on slowing down our heart rate, which lowers our blood pressure, which improves our oxygen exchange in our lungs, which allows our brain to have the fuel it needs to not be in fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. And then after we use that, and that, you know, as you practice it more, there I go again with practice. (laughs) Oh my gosh, we actually have to practice stuff. Um, It works quicker every single time. And you might Mm -hmm. notice you don't need the full acronym to calm your body down enough to go back into the facts checking of what is happening. What am I experiencing? Is this something that warrants this reaction? Mm -hmm. And as our brain starts to do that a little bit more, we quiet the amygdala down. We shut down the cortisol response and allow serotonin to continue to be reproduced. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And I, I've definitely heard of tip, but I'm not personally trained in DBT. I know yeah. I've, I've seen infographics shared about that. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love that too. And I, I talk about some of those things with um, the clients I work with and it, it does seem to help me like, why would I change the temperature? I'm like, let's talk about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's so crazy. And this goes back into that idea. The more that we explain to our clients, what is happening when we give them these coping skills, the more likely they're going to use them. Because mm-hmm. I've had so many clients and maybe you've kind of been in the same boat where in the past they have said, I'm not doing this. You're just telling me to do this, to distract me from the problem. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm right. not just telling you to distract you. These are the things that we do to rewire our brain. And if we consistently do them for approximately 66 days, the parts of our brain associated with memory, the hippocampus and hypothalamus are actually going to remember that this is what we're supposed to do when we're stressed. Mm -hmm. And it's going to increase the communication between the prefrontal cortex and amygdala. And we're going to calm down faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we calm down faster and that Mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex comes back online, we're able to think through things in a way that feels more clear and not as foggy and driven by this fight flight or uh, freeze response. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing I have to stress here is so many people believe that by doing this, all stress symptoms, all burnout symptoms are going to disappear. And the problem Mm -hmm. is, is that our brains have these mechanisms in place to keep us safe and to Mm -hmm. give us information. And even though these help, it's still trying to give us information on how to change what is in our control Yeah, to make it not so intense. Right. Dare I say it, burnout is a normal feeling to have when we're pushing ourselves to extremes. Yeah, absolutely. Anxiety is a normal thing to fear and have when we're pushing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And what we do with the information is ultimately how we rewire the brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, 
I mean, I'm sure there are, there are many different types of professions where this is really important to be able to understand, but particularly with people, as we talked about earlier, people like us in this profession, social workers, therapists, case managers, child protective services, all across the board, we are on a daily or weekly or monthly basis being exposed and re-exposed to things that, you know, our brains in hearing that information register danger. Even if we like logically know we're not in danger when we listen to these stories over time, it can alter our cognitions. And as you said, Mm -hmm. it can make us jaded. We can feel less positive about the world. So recognizing that even that in and of itself is a safety and kind of a trauma-based response for us. Like we're not, we're not immune to the effects of listening to the stories of other people's trauma and everything that they've been through. Mm -hmm. And that is a great way to put it. We are not immune to mental health issues Mm -hmm. just because we know what we're supposed to do. Right. If anything, it puts us in a place of greater responsibility of knowing this is what we have to do Mm -hmm. to stay healthy. No different than when we talk about, um, I think of cardiology doctors and the heart healthy diets that they push. Mm -hmm. I don't know a single cardiologist who doesn't follow the advice they give. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of family practice doctors when they are giving us information on how to use antibiotics. I'm hundred percent positive that they use antibiotics the correct way. Mm-hmm. And I'm also pretty positive that dentists who tells us to brush twice a day and floss twice a day. <laughs> I'm yeah. Well, mm-hmm. They themselves practice what they preach. Yep. And again, it just goes to prove that mental health professionals, we are not above practicing what we preach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm hoping too, that in talking about it, you know, we can, we can help professionals in this field, understand that for themselves. And also in some ways, you know, that, I mean, this podcast is absolutely geared towards people who are in the field. However, you know, I can't, I can't expect that there will never be a lay person or a client or somebody outside of the field listening to it. So talking about like, how can other people understand what it's like to be in this profession as well? And, you know, what does it mean when a mental health professional tries to set boundaries? Yeah. And I see your kiddo in the background. I'm loving it. Yeah. She, <laughs> she has decided, um, you know, cause she's still supposed to be down for a nap, but of mm-hmm. course she's decided, Hey, there's a chance to be on camera. Oh, yeah, totally. And who doesn't, who doesn't like to be on camera? <laughs> <laughs> but as we talk about for the layperson, it's important to know, I think for them that being, seeing a therapist means that we are human too. Mm-hmm. We are not, I have so many, so many family members who come up and they're like, well, you should be able to handle this just fine. Mm -hmm. You should be able to do all this. You should be able to come over and help us while managing your own life. It's like, dude, that's not the case. (laughs) We are human too. And Mm -hmm. humans, we do make mistakes and we will need to take mental health days. We will have to take sick days. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where I kind of, even with my clients, as they come up, I often talk to my clients in our very first initial session about what their expectations are and what is needed of them for me as far as maintaining boundaries. So not only I can continue to provide excellent care and helping them on their mental health journey, but also ensuring that my own health is being taken care of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like this is such a like perfect view of life yeah. in the COVID age. It is. <laughs> <I've got kiddos. laughs> okay, you can sit on my lap, but you gotta be quiet, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I just, I, I love everything that you've been talking about. And I think it is, it's important both for professionals and for people outside of the profession to have this better understanding of, you know, like we, we are, we are professionals. We provide a, provide a professional service and uh-huh. just like any other medical professional, we we're held to certain standards to yeah. ensure our own care. And we also are deserving of boundaries. Yeah. And, and as we explain that, what I have found with my clients, when we share those things, it helps set a precedent for them, again, as we're modeling the behavior that they're more likely to model it as well, too. And that is the important part is we're, we model what we want them to know, what we want them to do and what we want them to know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For the listeners, I, I, if you're listening on the podcast, you probably can't see, but we've got a guest, an, another guest on the show who is currently making some very funny faces at the camera and I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She is. Yep. Remember we're not touching the wires. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Three-year-olds three are awesome because. Three-year-olds are awesome and they help really put things into perspective and understanding what boundaries you have to maintain and what boundaries have to be broken. Example (laughs) right now, a case of the giggles because she's refusing to sleep. Got it. Yes. She's asserting her own needs. She needs to be up here hanging out with mom. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it's more like she knows that after lunch, that's when we can have snacks. And so she's been asking for lunch since like nine this morning. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, I do want to be mindful of lunchtime, snack time, all that good stuff. I do not want to get in the way of that. So just want to say, Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And it's always good, I think, as professionals to come together and talk about why burnout is so important and ways to kind of not only prevent burnout, but help look at the unusual signs and symptoms that we can have when we are burned out. Yeah. Yeah. And just being able to recognize that and share that with ourselves and with others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Yes. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode because I definitely did. Um, 
And I hope that in listening to this, you know, it it starts to inspire some conversation um, either with yourself or with your own family, partners, friends, all those folks who are in this with you, supporting you through burnout or trying to help you um, prevent ever getting there. I just, I hope that this can be a good conversation starter. Uh, Another thing that I am hoping is if these conversations have inspired you or if you feel like you want to join in on the conversation, I would love to have your voice added to this show. Uh, I am actively looking for people who are interested in showing up as guests on the show to either share their personal burnout story or to share Uh, things that they have learned while working in the field, uh, helping others through burnout. And I just, I really want to encourage you, you know, if you've been thinking about it or wondering about it, wondering if you'd even be a good guest on the show, uh, the answer is probably yes. You know, I want to hear from you. I, I want to keep having these conversations so that we can keep pushing this forward and pushing for the change that we need. Other than that, if you enjoy the show and you're looking to connect off of the show, you can find me on Instagram at mentalstatuspod. I'm always looking for feedback on the show. So if you have any comments or questions about what you heard today, you can send me an email at mentalstatuspod at gmail.com. If you like today's show, go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We are now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. So hit that subscribe button, leave a review, share these episodes, connect on social media, send me an email, do it up however you do. I just, I find it so valuable to connect with my listeners and I want to make sure that I'm hearing from you. Until next time, though, I hope you stay well and take care of yourselves as best you can. I'll see you next time. Bye.